Armia Krajowa. They were a Polish resistance in German-occupied Poland. My grandfather, he was part of this group, and he ended up being captured by the SS, interrogated and tortured. His ribs were stomped on. He had his ribs broken. He ended up being transferred to Camp Dora, which was a concentration camp in Poland. And this is kind of where the journal picks up. It starts with what happened to him when he was first transferred there and then how he ended up escaping. Thomas Edison, Richard Branson, John F. Kennedy, Mozart, Michael Jordan, Will Smith. That sounds like a list of highly successful titans in a variety of vocations. Why is it that we rarely hear that they have or had ADHD? And you know what we hear even less about? Serena Williams, Emma Watson, Mel Robbins, Whoopi Goldberg, Agatha Christie, Aaron Brockovich, Cher. Yeah, the successful women navigating ADHD. And that's exactly why I started this podcast, ADHD for Smartass Women. I'm your host, Tracy Otsuka. I'm a lawyer, not a doctor, a lifelong student, now a coach. I'm also the creator of Your ADHD Brain is A-OK, a system that helps people like you figure out what they should do with their life. And we're here today to talk ADHD, your strengths, your symptoms, your workarounds, and how you proudly stand out instead of trying to fit in. I credit my ADHD for some of my greatest gifts. And you know what? I spy a happier life for you too. So without further ado, a shiny new episode is starting now. Hello, I am your host, Tracy Otsuka. Thank you so much for joining me here for episode number 197 of ADHD for Smartass Women. I hope you'll subscribe to this podcast and our newsletter over at tracyoutsuka.com. My purpose is always to show you who you are and then inspire you to be it. In the thousands of ADHD women that I've had the privilege of meeting, I've never met a one that wasn't truly brilliant at something. Not one. So for all of these reasons, I am just delighted to introduce you to Renee. Oh my gosh, Renee, I forgot to ask how to pronounce your last name. Is it Gruy? Oh, it is Gruy. Good job. I got it. Okay. <laughs> Renee Gruy. So Renee is a happily married 38-year-old mother of three. She's an Air Force veteran who now works as a civilian contractor with the Air Force as an information system security officer for advanced programs. She has a master's degree in cybersecurity management from Purdue University that she earned while working full-time, caring for her family, and being the altruistic gestational carrier for a friend. She has four parrots, two crazy dogs, and she's always looking for new hobbies and interests because ADHD. She enjoys watching and supporting her children's activities and hobbies, 
exercising on her Peloton. Woo-woo. I was just doing that this morning. <laughs> Listening to ADHD for Smart Ass Women podcast. Thank you. And watching and listening to a disturbing amount of true crime documentaries with her husband, Ben. <laughs> Renee was recently diagnosed with combined type ADHD after 37 years of compensating, concealing, and struggling with memory issues. She is also the granddaughter of two Holocaust survivors. She recently received a translated copy of her grandfather's escape journal that details his capture and imprisonment by Nazi soldiers and his miraculous and courageous escape. Renee believes that the details of her grandfather's escape are indicative of him having undiagnosed ADHD and may be the very reason that he was able to survive all of it. Renee, welcome. Did I get all of that right? You did. Thank you. No, thank you so much for being here. So, okay, first of all, Information System Security Officer for Advanced Programs, but you have a master's degree in cybersecurity. So what is that? What are you doing? So basically it's um, IT support and information system security, which is just the all of the cybersecurity that is involved with the DOD networks, but just for a very specialized set of systems that deal with advanced programs. And basically what advanced programs are is programs that the government has kind of grouped together and said, hey, this particular set of programs needs a little bit more security than the rest. And so I sort of manage those systems on our Air Force Base here in Charleston. So are we talking about information that's international? Yes. Okay. Uh, yeah. I, I, I was going to say, can you give us an example? But I'm sure you can't. <laughs> um, unfortunately, I can't. It's highly protected programs. So is this fascinating work? It can be. It can also be very dull. Yeah. <laughs> So what are your hours like? Is it, oh my gosh, there's something major going on and we just need you now, you know, 24-7? Or is it very predictable work? It's, it's pretty predictable. Mm -hmm. It's, um, yeah, the nature of my job is basically if it's not broken, I don't have to worry about it. And I do have to do some daily maintenance and read people into programs and that sort of thing. But yeah, as far as my part goes, it's pretty predictable. Are you good at what you do? I would say yes, I am good. <laughs> I am good at what I do. And do you enjoy it? It's not my passion in life. It's ah. what I picked as my career because I knew that I would be able to give my family what I needed to give them. <laughs> so is this work that you can do remote or do you have to, I'm thinking you probably have to be there? Yeah, this particular job, I have to be there on site for the majority of the time, but there are certainly lots of remote positions available within this career field. Wow. So where do you live? I live in Charleston, South Carolina. Oh, yeah. That's a beautiful city. Yes, And it, so it I'm assuming you work in Charleston as well. I do. I work on the Air Force Base here. Got it. Okay. Altruistic gestational carrier. What is that? Yes. So I think I know, but yeah, you, I'm sure you do. So I was a surrogate for a friend of mine. And all that means is that I did it for, I did it without compensation. 
So I volunteered to help my friend and her husband have their son. And I carried him and he was full term and he's healthy and he is turning three in February. Oh my gosh. And you already have three children. Two of them are mine biologically and then one is a stepchild, but yes. You're amazing. What a wonderful thing to do. Now, I loved being pregnant and I know that may probably makes me odd, so... I would have loved to do that, but I I don't know. Is it hard then to, I mean, it's a good friend of yours, right? So I I suppose you're bonded like sisters now. Yeah, we're definitely family at this point. We started off as acquaintances, honestly, but you can't go through that with someone and them not end up being a family member. I mean, we were a part of each other's daily lives for, it was a good 18 months. Wow. Wow. Um, so there was one other thing that I wanted to ask you about, or I wanted to comment about the true crime documentaries. What the (laughs) hell is it with ADHD brains? Like I am so sensitive to, you know, the news and any kind of movies, certainly like, you know, things like Schindler's List. I mean, I couldn't watch it. I can't watch Oscar winning movies, but I love all that true crime and it doesn't freak me out at all. That is, that is what I watch when I'm cooking. It's bad. It's so strange. And I'm the same way. I can't watch horror movies or anything that involves people being tortured or I can't watch it, but I literally listen to murder podcasts every day. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. There might be something wrong with us, but... Well, I, okay, so let's think about this. So it's the intensity, right, that makes you pay attention because you want to know the answer. Yes. But I also think it's the fun of figuring out the puzzle because I usually sit there and my kids just will look at me, you know, like, what? <laughs> my kids are older, you know, so it's not like I've got my three-year-old watching this. Um, my daughter just turned 24 and my son's 20. And they just look at me like I'm I'm nuts because the minute it starts, I'm like, up. Oh, it's the wife or it's the husband. <laughs> and I'm almost always right. It sucks me in because I want to know, am I right? I know. I'm the same way. I love it. I don't normally do this, but your bio, there were so many questions that I had. <laughs> so I want you to talk to me about what you mean by memory issues, because you're the one who you know commented that you were just diagnosed with combined type ADHD. Mm-hmm. And this was after 37 years of compensating, concealing, and struggling with memory issues. I, I want to yes. know what you mean by that. Well, it started when I was a kid. And generally, it would be during ballet. So in ballet, you have to learn choreography. Mm-hmm. And I always struggled learning the choreography. It took me longer than pretty much every other girl. But then once I had it, I had it. And I think it was just that repetition. But so that was the the first thing I noticed when I was a kid. And I was I always thought that was kind of strange about myself, but didn't really think anything of it. Well, as I've gotten older and especially after having babies, <laughs> I there I literally cannot put something down and remember where it was even two minutes later. I've gotten into my my husband and I, we very rarely get into arguments. But I I started to notice that when we were having arguments, a lot of the times it was because I couldn't remember something extremely important. So at that point, I was, you know, like, what's going on with me? What, what, 
what is this brain malfunction? Mm -hmm. It's, it's affecting my daily life. It's affecting my relationships with people. I was starting to forget things at work, very important things that I couldn't necessarily write down. So it was, you know, starting to be a, a, a huge problem. So did you think that, oh my gosh, I've got early onset dementia? I went back and forth between, do I have dementia? Am I dumb? Oh, oh <laughs> um, yeah. Am I dumb? I forgot about that one. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, it's, she might kill me for saying this, but my mom has always had memory issues as well. So in, <laughs> since learning about myself, I have diagnosed her, although she refuses to accept the diagnosis. <laughs> um, I, I've learned that it's it's not that there's something wrong with my intelligence. I don't think I have early onset dementia. Mm-hmm. And I mean, this clearly explains it. It's just one of my many symptoms. So can I ask you, um, do you have problems memorizing things or are you good with that? I am horrible. And if I do have to memorize something... As soon as I'm done using it, it's gone. My brain Mm -hmm. will just dump it. Yeah. So even if you memorize, do you find that you have to ad lib? And it's almost like when you're trying to recall what you memorized, it it just gets even worse. And the harder you try, the worse it gets. Yeah, it gets frustrating. And it's something that I've realized a lot of people just don't struggle with. And so I think that was kind of why... I was just leaning more towards, well, you know, maybe I'm just not as smart as I think I am. (laughs) Yeah. And that would literally change every day. One day I'd be like, hey, I'm pretty intelligent. And then I would, (laughs) the next day I'm like, no, you're dumb. (laughs) And that's been my whole life. So how did you do in school, Renee? When I was a young kid, I did pretty well. I got good grades up until about... I would say sixth or seventh grade, maybe eighth grade. Um, <laughs> and yeah, I puberty. I was, the C's and the D's were starting to hit the report yeah. cards. Mm-hmm. And then math, I was just always, I was basically on the verge of failing math my whole life at that, from that point on. So what was interesting to me is that in subjects that I enjoyed, like English and like government classes, I was getting A's. But then the classes like math that I didn't enjoy, it was C's, D's. And then as I got older, F's, I was failing. So I made it through high school, but I did end up dropping math my senior year. So have you tested for any learning challenges like dyscalculia or dyslexia? I have not. My dad has dyslexia, so... It's, you know, it's a possibility, but I haven't, I haven't tested for it, no. But I do switch numbers around a lot, I've noticed. And phone numbers, I, I, <laughs> you're supposed to be able to remember a seven-digit phone number. Right. I, can, I cannot. No. I, I mean, I can't at all. I, I don't even know my husband's phone number <laughs> or my kid's think, phone number. Oh, so and then kids' social security numbers? Forget it. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I'll, I'll never know that. <laughs> Yeah. But you know what's interesting is I will never forget my social security number. I will never forget the phone number that I had when I was young. It was <laughs> like you once it once I got to it was for me 7th 8th grade. 
Mm-hmm. I had a steel trap memory. I was the lead in all the plays, not just in English, but also in German. I could memorize song lyrics. I could memorize anything. But the minute I got to, I think it was eighth grade, it all went. And I always wondered, I mean, I didn't know I had ADHD, but I always wondered, why could I do it then? And I can't do it now. Like, yeah. it just didn't make sense. And I'm curious if that was your experience. I don't remember ever being able to remember things that well. But I also kind of felt like in general, I was just a very late bloomer Mm -hmm. and just different from other kids. I always felt like I was different. I couldn't put my finger on it, but I just remember sitting there in classrooms and feeling out of place. You might want to go get yourself tested for dyslexia because, you know, it's hereditary. (laughs) If your Mm -hmm. dad had it, there's a good chance you may have it. And the interesting thing about it is, so my son tests really high in math, but he's always struggled. Not always. He started struggling in math. I think it was the seventh grade algebra when they started mixing the letters with the numbers. Ah, yeah. (laughs) And so, you know, like calculating things like he's one of, he's a human calculator, you know, and, you know, he loves like finance and managing money and the stock market. And well, he's in investment banking, right? So he's totally into all that, but he almost flunked out of his uh, college calculus class and it wasn't for lack of studying. So that's when we had him tested because, you know, when you think of dyslexia, you think, oh, well, that doesn't affect math. Well, it actually can. So, yeah, yeah. It's definitely a possibility. I failed out of, I don't even think I put that in the bio because I wanted to share it with you live. Uh-huh. <laughs> I failed out of undergrad school my senior year. Uh, say that again. You failed out of what? Undergrad. So my bachelor's degree, I failed out of school and had to go back and complete it later on. Okay. So let's let's start at the beginning. So you graduated from high school. You went to college. How did you do your first year? What was your major? And I didn't have one until I was absolutely forced to pick one. I was <laughs> undecided. Course. Yeah, I had no idea what I wanted to do. I thought I was going to be a professional ballet dancer. That didn't work out. Yeah, there was no chance I was going to make it that far with ballet. But I think I just, I don't know, maybe I was delusional in high school, but that's what I wanted to do because even though I've never been the best dancer, it always it brought me lots of joy. So that's what I wanted to do. I had a dance instructor flat out tell me, no one will ever hire you. (laughs) Oh, that is so cruel. And the sad thing was it was based on body type. And I'm not, you know, I wasn't an athletic looking kid. But anyway, I had no idea what I wanted to do. I changed my major like four or five times. And the whole time I was in school, I was working. So, you know, I was trying to balance all of that. And then I ended up failing out my senior year. But right before I failed out, I remember thinking, I think I might have ADHD or something like that. And I Mm. went and saw a counselor and I was basically just dismissed. The counselor wanted to talk about my past trauma. And at that point in my life, I was not ready for that. And so I freaked out, never went back, and ended up sailing out shortly after that. Your senior year. Yeah. Wow. But everything happens for a reason, right? It does. So what was the reason? So after that, 
I was, you know, I didn't have my ADHD diagnosis. Which Wait, ended can, you, up can you tell probably, us? Can you tell us though, what major did you end up going into ultimately? Oh, hospitality management. Okay. <laughs> and so what was the class that was so hard that you, that caused you to fail out? Oh gosh. You know, it's funny because I printed, printed out my transcript just the other day <laughs> to, because I, we have a, we have a home bar and we have all of our failures and all of our successes hung up on the walls. And Wait, so I printed it that? out to hang it up. <laughs> what do you call that? A home bar? It's our, ho- we have a home bar, home, like a bar and lounge in our house. Okay. And, and you yeah. put all your successes and all your failures up there? Yeah, it's called Second Chance Bar. I love and so I have that is my so fa- great. Oh my god. <laughs> I have my transcript from failing and then I have my my transcript from uh, my master's degree where I got a 4.0 GPA. So it's oh just funny god. to see like, <laughs> the differences. But the point of it is I want my kids to see, you know, yes. it's okay. Mom and dad have failed here, but look how we did here. What an incredible lesson, right? Not only for yourself because you see it all the time, but also for Mm -hmm. your kids that, hey, there's no such thing as failure. So what happened? What led to going back, getting a 4.0? Did you change your major? No, I didn't. I I picked the easiest major on purpose. Come on, Tracy. (laughs) (laughs) It's just about finishing, right? Exactly. No, I, I joined the military. I joined the Air National Guard. And... That brought me so much stability and structure, mm. and I thrived in that. I thrived there. I was put in leadership positions and basic training. I graduated basic training with honors. I got to pick whatever job I wanted because my scores were so high on the ASVAB. And yeah. so I, I picked IT because I was like, well, I want to make a lot of money one day. What can I do? <laughs> oh, Computers seem to be popular these days. So I picked, I picked IT, got trained and yeah, I went back, finished my last few classes and got my bachelor's degree. And I've been working in the IT and cybersecurity field ever since. So the woman who failed math went and got a degree in, um, what did you say? Um, cybersecurity management. But you you said something before that. You decided that you wanted to go, oh, into computers. That's yeah, that, yeah. that was where my brain was going. Um, mm-hmm. So the woman who failed math went and got a degree so that she could work on computers. Yes, but you don't really deal with any math. <laughs> the math <laughs> but, that you do deal isn't with that is that what's so ridiculous, Renee? They make you go through all of that, and then you don't even use it. Like, well, what the hell? Yeah, it is ridiculous, but you know what? <laughs> So what changed, Renee? What was the difference between that first time when you were flunking out and then you go into the International Guard, which I don't really know what the International Guard is, so you're going to have to oh, tell us what that sorry. is. sorry. Air National Guard. So it's just like Air. the Air Reserve, Air Force Reserves. Oh, okay. But we can be activated by the federal and the state government, whereas okay. reserves, they're activated by the federal government. Federal. Okay. Um, and then what was the question? I'm trying to remember. <laughs> This is everyday life. (laughs) I wanted to know what changed, right? You're flunking out of school. You actually did flunk out of school because you just couldn't handle it. You go into the military and everything changes. And then you go back to school and you graduate with a 4.0. What happened? I think it was a combination of finally maturing. I feel like I just was not mature. 
until much later than most people. And I think that the military was a huge confidence boost because here I am, like I just failed out of college. I feel like I'm, I feel like a loser and I get accepted. I score so high. I can pick whatever job I want to do. And I go through training and I'm recognized as a natural leader and put in leadership positions and then graduate with honors. I, I mean, I was just killing it. And I think it was the confidence boost that I needed. I needed to know that I could be successful. It's learned helplessness, right? Because mm -hmm. if we think we can't do it, if we think we're stupid, slow, all over the place, whatever, everything that we try to accomplish, we see through that lens versus exactly. suddenly you had a completely different self-concept. And so you mm -hmm. realized, wait, I'm not stupid. I'm actually really smart. And I still struggle with imposter syndrome. I mean, every day. And it's crazy. I'll diminish my own achievements. Yep. And it's just insane. <laughs> we just recorded an episode on imposter syndrome with Cheyenne. She was fantastic. She has written a book about sales and sales leadership. And she's just amazing at what she does. I mean, she's, you know, I think she created the sales training program for Yelp University. I mean, it's oh, wow. just you know, on and on. She's, um, I think in her forties in her mid forties. And she was saying the exact same thing. She's done all these things, has all these accomplishments, but it still creeps back. And yeah. it's an, it's an ongoing, um, she's just always working on it because I think when you have that self-concept and I hate to tell you, but it's also mixed with trauma, right? Yeah. We mm -hmm. always navigate back towards, you know, where we're comfortable. And so if we grew up feeling that, you know, we're not enough, we don't know what we're doing, we're not very smart, you know, we're all over the place, we go back to those thought patterns. And so to make sure that we acknowledge our successes and we celebrate them. And luckily I have people around me that make sure that your I celebrate. Wall, because our wall. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Yep. And I'm also wondering, too, you said that, well, I think when I went back, I just was more mature. And I'm sure that's part of it because you were older. But was it also, again, that, no, this time you had the skills. So when you went into the military, they taught you how important structure was for your brain. I do think that's part of it, although my dad was a Marine. And so I kind of I grew up with that. Well, there's structure. Yeah, mm -hmm. there was definitely structure in my house. I don't think it was as focused on education as my parents would have liked it to be because they were both very young when they had me. And I believe both of them have ADHD <laughs> and they were kind of dealing with their own stuff. So, yeah, I, I do think that military reinforced kind of what I had as a backbone, but it just it brought it out a little bit more. Yeah, that's so fascinating. The other question that I had for you is I wanted to know, when did you quit dancing ballet? I stopped when I was about 22. Mm. I was doing it in college too, just for fun. And um, so did you stop um, before your senior year? Yeah, I did. I, I actually had to stop because I had an injury. I, I injured my back pretty badly uh -huh. and there was just no way I was going to be able to dance anymore. But now I have um, all three of my kids do ballet and I get to see them do it every day of the week pretty much. So it's awesome. So do you think that 
part of the reason why you struggled even more was because you no longer had ballet. Probably. I think there was a lot going on. There was a, a lot of impulsivity in the form of bouncing from toxic relationship to toxic relationship. I had work. Oh, oh my gosh, Tracy. I, I think I worked probably 10 different jobs when I was in college because All I would way just through. I would just bounce from job to job mm -hmm. and always, you know, the living paycheck to paycheck, barely being able to afford to eat. <laughs> oh my gosh. There was so a lot. Put, there was a lot. Did you put yourself through college? I did. Yep. Wow. That's so impressive. So impressive. I mean, I hope you celebrate that every day. Celebrated every time I see my student loan balance. <laughs> oh gosh. Yeah. Well, hopefully it's at least a little bit less. It is. $10,000 <laughs> less. Yeah, hopefully. We'll find out soon. Yeah. So the reason I asked about ballet was because that is one of the best exercises that you can do for an ADHD brain because you're mixing not only the aerobics, because whether people know this or not, ballet is one of the hardest things you can do as far Absolutely. as, you know, it is so hard. But you've got that. But at the same time, as you were saying, you have to work your brain because you have to remember the steps. Exactly. It's a great exercise for an ADHD brain. So what, like martial arts, ice skating? Yes. And the music, the music. Yes. It does such wonders for your brain. And I played some string instruments as well. So I was pretty artistic. I'm, that being said, I was not fantastic at any of that, but I loved to do it and I stuck with it. And so I had that structure. Yeah. I really feel like ballet, because I did it as well, six days a week, uh, you know, sometimes two hours a day, and it changed my brain. The reason why I think my ADHD symptoms were a lot less just generally across the board is because of my training in ballet. I just think it, it built new neural pathways. Okay. So what I want to know, once you knew it was ADHD, and that explained these memory issues you were having and, you know, some of the other uh, symptoms as well. And you had the benefit of hindsight. Were there any symptoms that you always wondered about, but now you recognize that, oh, yeah, that was ADHD? The biggest one is definitely the memory issues. Um, yeah. And, and the way that it was explained to me is it's not your fault. Your brain's filing cabinet is virtually non-existent. So once I learned that, and had that weight lifted, I, it just, I was like, oh man, so this is why I'm so impulsive. This is why I change my hair constantly. <laughs> this is why I hate cooking. This is why I can't respond to a text until like three days later. This is why I need nine to 12 hours of sleep. <laughs> I mean, everything started to make sense. Yeah. So it was less about, oh, you're broken, you're defective, and more about, nope, I just have a different brain and, you know, I need a different and operating system. I have to say your podcast really is the reason. We moved into this house in August and we were painting, painting every single day. And so it was right around the time that I had just been diagnosed and I stumbled upon your podcast, binge listened. My husband was binge listening. <laughs> oh, and there would be times where I'm like, you know, I know that I'm, I know you say that I'm a lot like this Tracy lady and <laughs> a lot like the people that she has on her show, but I, and I was just diagnosed, but I really, I don't know, like, am I really, or am I just like bipolar? 
what is it? And he's like, Renee, you are definitely ADHD. And that validation was all I needed. Well, okay. So the big question, you know, the difference between ADHD and bipolar disorder when we're talking about mania is when you, okay, let's just say, I'm not saying this is true, but let's say someone gets emotionally dysregulated, right? And they sort of flip out Mm -hmm. for a second. Is it because something happened and just as soon as it happened, it's gone? Or is it something that comes out of nowhere and it lasts for weeks? Yeah. So I feel like I can speak on this because I do have a family member who mm-hmm. has schizoaffective disorder, uh, yeah. which is bipolar and schizophrenia combined together. And I also believe that he probably has ADHD too. I know he has PTSD. He has pretty much a little bit of everything. Yeah. And, highly comorbid. Mm-hmm. And so I've watched that mental health journey for the last 10 years or so, 11 years, and learned a lot about it. And I've seen people in a a state of mania, a true mania that lasts for days or weeks. And I knew that's not what I had because I had something I could directly compare it to. Okay. So we've solved that problem. So what (laughs) has changed, Brene, since you were diagnosed? Everything. Everything. Tell me. Well, now that I finally understand myself, My husband and I have been able to take a better look at our three children, and Mm. we now are starting to understand them better and seek help for them. And even if they don't need that help, we're, we're taking steps to make sure. So we just had all three kids see a child psychiatrist and be examined. We don't have the results back yet, but just from doing the rating scales. Yeah. I'm pretty sure all three are going to come back. With ADHD. <laughs> is and your husband does your husband have ADHD? I, if he does, it's he's very, very low on the spectrum. Uh-huh. His now his brother definitely has it and had it his whole life. Mm-hmm. And yeah, his I can see it on his side of the family as as well as mine. So yeah. It's strong genes right there. We gravitate towards each other typically. Yes. It's either yeah. the absolute opposite or the same, right? He's, his executive functions are a little bit better than mine, (laughs) but yeah, but luckily he, he grew up with it. So I guess he knows how to handle it. (laughs) He grew up with his brother having it. So let's talk about your grandfather. This was the most fascinating story. So just so that our listeners know, Renee sent me a portion of her grandfather's, what do you call it? Journal? Yeah, we're we're just calling it a journal. Unfortunately, we don't have the entire thing. Mm. We only had a portion of it. So it's a journal about his experiences during the Holocaust. So can you just give us um, a little synopsis of what we're going to talk about here and what the journal entailed? Of course. So this journal, it was written in Polish. And my, I think she's a teenager, my cousin actually took four months and translated it from Polish to English. Wow. And some of it doesn't translate perfectly. You'll notice that present tense and past tense kind of blend together, but it's fascinating. And he was young. He was about 18 or 19 when this happened to him. And so he was a member of the Polish underground army. It's called 
Armia Krajowa, and they were a Polish resistance in German-occupied Poland that provided intel to allies about the situation there in Poland with the Germans. Mm. And they also provided protection and financial aid to the Jewish population there in Poland. This is a little side note. I found out that one of the members of the underground army even volunteered to go to Auschwitz as a prisoner. Just so that he could collect information to give to Western allies about what was happening to the Jewish people. Wow. So my grandfather, he was part of this group and he ended up being captured by the SS. And I've heard kind of different stories about how he was captured. I just don't know the validity of it. And I didn't want to ask my grandmother who is still alive because it's just for her, it's just painful memories at this point. Mm -hmm. But regardless, he was captured by the SS, interrogated and tortured His ribs were stomped on. He had his ribs broken. And he was placed into this jail in Warsaw called Pabiek. And the death rate in that prison was 40% at that time. So he was there. And I'm not sure how long he was there. But then he ended up being transferred along with pretty much all of the other prisoners to Camp Dora, which was a concentration camp in Poland. Mm Mm-hmm. And this is kind of where the journal picks up. It starts with um, what happened to him when he was first transferred there and then how he ended up escaping. And I've just picked out some parts of his journal that I just kind of want to read, let it sink in, and then tell you the things that stood out to me as, hey, I think he had ADHD, and I think that that is actually why he may have survived this. Well, and I just want to say that, um, so my podcast producer, Grace, she's fantastic. She's the one, she sent me this journal early, and she's like, Tracy, you have to read this. And it's, what, what is it, like 20 pages long? Yeah, it's 21. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I, you know, I'm writing this book. I should be writing. I shouldn't be reading this. But I'll just read like, you know, one little entry. Well, I started and I couldn't stop. It literally no, read <laughs> like the best novel, even though it was in this broken kind of English. There were so many questions I had, so many things that I wanted to know. Um, and so I am wondering, are you going to let us share that? Oh, yes. Yeah. On the podcast? We can share it. We Perfect. So we'll we can put share it, in the show it or I can even just I can give you the whole thing or I can just take the parts of it that I feel are the most interesting. It's up to you. No, give us the whole thing because I okay. think that's what I read, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. So you go. Okay. So this is the first part of the journal entry that was translated that we have access to. So it starts. After a short while, we were transferred to Dora Camp. Dora Camp was a very important German strategic operation during World War II. Here, prisoners were digging tunnels in Rocky Mountains, building underground factory. Most of the work excavation, construction of facilities, and production was done by prisoners. This ensured that the secret was kept within the concentration camp. Prisoners were terrorized by not being allowed to speak about the nature of the work in the tunnels. Breaking the rules was punished by hanging. This was a concentration camp that hangings occurred every day, and it was observed by all prisoners, and usually it was 
hanging probably dozen prisoners at one time. Working in tunnels was horrendous. Loading stones on trolleys, pulling trolleys and unloading, breathing stone dirt and poor ventilation undermines health very rapidly. The barracks were overcrowded. Bunks of three layers high had four prisoners to one bed. This means that one have to sleep in a seating position. People were sleeping on floor, in hallway, in bathroom. To sleep at open window was too cold. In middle of barracks, it was too hot and lack of breathing air. At Dora, I was assigned to commando that was quite a distance from the camp. So we were transported to the job site by truck. We were about a dozen prisoners. I was electrician, which they needed. I have never seen such construction before or after. My only explanation will be that some electronic device needed shielding from outside interference. Most of the prisoners worked outside on the foundation for the barracks. I was asked to do some electrical work in the Zilla. Being busy in the hallway around the new switch, I met for a short while with a girl. She asked me if I am Polish. Yes. Where am I from? Warsaw. She said she will put a sandwich under the bench. It was dangerous for her to talk to prisoners, but her curiosity and good heart made the difference for me and my self-esteem to try harder to survive the horrors of concentration camp. Later, I found a sandwich and put it under my jacket on the return trip to camp. I shared it with the rest of the commando. What a feast. What a holiday for always hungry folks. Squadrons of airplanes were flying all over above our heads. SS guarding troops were nervous more and more and uncertain about their future. My friend, Richard, started to talk to escape. Required some preparation. The rumors were spreading that healthy prisoners will walk. Sick will have a railroad ride. From malnutrition, our legs were swollen and infected. So we started to simulate that we could not walk find sticks to support ourselves. Then we borrowed hammer from tool shop, find large nails and started to hammer the nail so that it would look like a knife, very primitive knife, very dull. We try to keep together so we will be in the same transport column and in the same train. The plan to escape was to hold together by entering the cargo car, stay close to the vent windows. At night, we would start to cut covers in the window. Usually, trains slow down on sharp curves, so it will be a good time to jump from the train. Once one jumps, he will walk in the direction of the train. The last man will wait at the train, and together we will walk towards the wooded terrain. This was a master plan that we had in our heads. Do not mention to anybody else. This plan kept us emotionally alive. Eventually, the day of evacuation was announced. Each prisoner received a loaf of bread and a can of vegetables, enough for three men. Naturally, we consumed these immediately. This was the rule of concentration camp. Food was only safe in the stomach. After the Germans started to form column in five in a row and marched to the railroad station. Here, the cargo train was waiting. This time, cars were conserved so that we did not have SS guards in each car. The guards were riding in a separate car at the end of the train. At each stop, they were patrolling the train on each side. 
The destination was Bergen-Belsen. And this is a side note. Bergen-Belsen is where Anne Frank went. We did not know about destination, but from the frequency of air raids and close sounds of artillery shots, it was a sure sign that the war will not last too long and we have a pretty good chance to survive. Richard and I were together in a cargo train in a car at the tail end of the train. We were briefed that if anybody dared to escape, then all the prisoners in that car will be executed. This created a very tense atmosphere in the car that we faced from the very beginning of our trip. Our heads were spinning with thoughts about our plan to escape with possible death risk, but a prize to be free had a great temptation and it was so close. Waiting for the train to start to move, we learned of one problem. There were no toilet facilities. The minute the train started, we announced that we had to cut a few slats from the window in order to get rid of the waste. It was reasonable under the circumstances. We started to work with the nail-shaped knives. The dull knife makes the work slow and tedious. We had time, but muscles were not in the best condition. Richard and I were alternating to have some rest between the cutting action. The longest time was to cut the first slat. All of this work had to be done in a pitch-black atmosphere. This was a moonless night, the fairest condition for our plans. Inside the car was absolute darkness. You have to feel everything with your hands. Every time the train stops, I have the most important job to place all the slats in place between fingers and hold. That was so the SS guards would not discover our planes. The very dark night was helpful. After a while, other prisoners were concerned and raised the question, why do we continue to enlarge the hole? We tried to pacify them that we do need more air for better ventilation. Other prisoners around us figured out our activities and wanted to join us. There were quite a number of volunteers. When the hole was ready and the train speeds dropped on a curve, we practically had to push through the window, legs first, then the rest of the body. We pushed the second man out, and now Richard and I decided it will be our turn to jump. With my whole might, I pushed away from the outside wall of the car, out of the hole. I hit hard the stone bed of the track. All of my bones were okay, however, my right and left hands were bleeding. I used the handkerchief to stop bleeding. However, poor sanitary conditions developed infection so that both of my hands were swollen for quite a while. Still, I am alive and free. Really, I do not have too much time to enjoy the precious occasion. Still laying on the ground, I hear screech of the brakes and the train stopped. This we did not consider in our plans to escape. So common sense had to guide me. Pitch dark night, SS guards started to run along the train. There was no time to run away. I did not have the strength to move fast anyway. So I did roll over towards the train and railroad tracks. The mind spinning with hundreds of thoughts. First, I wished to be smaller than the stones I was laying on. If I am discovered, then they will shoot me on the spot. It is bad, but no way to return to the car without being discovered. Now some of the SS guards started to search with flashlights under the cars. It means that only a matter of minutes I will be discovered for sure. 
The mind is warming up. No chance to move. Now I hear stone rattling. Somebody from the opposite side of the train crawls in front of me under the train to the same side I was hiding. From behind, I hear SS guard running. The SS guard stumbles over the man that was crawling under the train. The SS guard hits several times the man. He moans. The flashlights are approaching me. And then the beautiful sound of characteristic train clutches. Locomotive starts and the sound of clicking propagates between cars towards the end of the train. It is shouted out, return to train. SS guard loads his rifle. Characteristic metal sound of the magazine. Shot is fired. SS guard runs after the train, the sound of the train fading away. To be so close to death that you almost see the stars in your eyes and what? I am still alive, I am free, but still holding my head to the ground of crushed stones that formed the bed for the railroad tracks. The same shot scared remaining volunteers to jump from the train. So I assume I am on my own. How about the man that was shot? Maybe he was only wounded and needed assistance. I try to find him with my hands. Nobody was there. Maybe he got away, but a bloodstain would give some clue and the ground was dry. So after all, maybe the guard missed intentionally or in his excitement to catch the train. Nobody knows. What a feeling of joy. One feels like a bird ready to fly back to your home, to your hometown, back to your family, relatives, and friends. But the reality is harsher. You have to take care of yourself. In hostile environment, enemies all around, empty stomach, no definite plans, just a strong desire to survive. All this brain work in the middle of pitch black somewhere, in the middle of Germany, far away from towns, was interrupted by the call somewhere around the railroad tracks. Basile! I keep quiet. First, I do not know who that might be. Railroad guard or German soldier. But the name is typically Russian. After a while, I do answer, What? We did repeat several times. Basile! What? The same procedure until we obtained contact. I was dressed in prisoner uniform with wooden shoes and a beret. He was dressed in similar uniform. My suspicions were whipped away. Polish and Russian language are in Slavic family, so there are some words similar, and we were able to exchange information. First is appreciation to mighty God that this dangerous act was successful so far. The next thing we decided to do was go towards the woods as far as possible. The pitch dark night covered our movement ideally, but we did make a mistake. We were talking, which attracted the attention of another prisoner that escaped. By the time we reached the edge of the woods and sat down, we heard the voice, Who is there? Who is there? We froze. Then the Russian guy said, Here is one Polish. Luckily, it was not a railroad guard or other military. The second Russian man was his friend and had escaped. I did not meet my friends. We were cold and we were hungry. This was April 4th, 1945. Cold spring night, but dry. To go to sleep and rest, we sit under the tree with one man reading on the tree and spreading his legs. The second man sat between the first man's legs 
and leaned against his chest. The second man spread his legs, and then the third man sat again between the second man's legs. This way, we were able to maintain body heat. The next night, my Russian friends were able to catch a rabbit and proudly brought it in a sack. To keep feet warm, I put my legs into the sack under the rabbit. I tried to secure the opening. During the night, the, ma the rabbit managed to go free. So our dinner for the day hopped away. You should hear the swears all day long. At night, I started to walk. The walk of a skeleton covered with human skin. Hardly able to move legs, exhausted from malnutrition. So that if there was a stone in the way, I would rather walk around than to lift the legs to step over it. Walk that is hard to explain. It is like being in a sort of ecstasy, half consciousness. You know what you want to do, but it is so difficult. The large trees on the side of the road or the burned abandoned vehicles on the road seem to have taken forms of monsters until you get close to it and touch it with your hands and face reality. The lonely walk and the silence of the night make you slip. I never experienced a situation like that. The only pothole in the road makes you lose balance. I wake up and then fall back into the trance of subconsciousness. Then you hear the sound of flowing water, water in the stream, so you stop and lay down and swallow. It satisfies your thirst, but upsets the stomach. Sauerkraut, raw chicken, raw vegetables makes the stomach like a bomb, not able to hold anything. The only thing that makes you feel you are alive is itching and biting from fleas and lice. Walking during the night, Half asleep made the body warmer. It did not make any sense, not knowing where I was or what direction I was aiming. Just an unction of despair, hoping that eventually I will end back in Poland with my friend and family. Get back to school and start my own family. At the day again, I had to hide in the bushes, in the ditch around the road. Luckily, I spotted a man walking on the road. When he was closer, I noticed that he had a yellow triangle on the side of his jacket. Yellow triangles were the mark of foreign workers in Germany. P for Polish, R for Russian, F for French, and so on. One thing I was sure that the approaching man was not German. When he was closer, I called out to him. He stopped and responded. He was Ukrainian. Ukrainian language is Slavic and even closer to the Polish language than Russian. So we were able to converse easier. From him, I found that the American parachute troops took over this part of Germany, but they left. The closest post was about 70 miles away, too much for me to walk. The closest village, Geteld, is a couple miles away and has the camp, an ex-shooting gallery for foreigners that were working on the farms in the village. On the outskirts of the village is a tannery, and there are two Polish people working there and they could give me instructions on how to reach that camp. I thanked the man for all the information, and now I walked on the road in the daylight, sure that nobody will shoot me. My spirits were quite high. Finally, I find a safe way to get among friendly people again. And that's the end of the journal that I'll read. When he ended up in that spot, he ended up being about a 14-hour walk from Camp Dora. So what are the things that you noted when you were reading this journal that indicated to you that 
oh my gosh, I think my grandfather may have had ADHD and that's what saved him. So the first thing I noticed that stood out to me was he was given that sandwich by that mm. girl that he met. And instead of eating it, you know, at this point, he's malnourished. He's starving. Yeah. Instead of eating it, he puts it in his jacket and shares it with 11 other people. Wow. It's and, like one bite. <laughs> and he's so thankful for it. He's calling it a feast. And to me, that showed that he had a strong sense of right and wrong, even when he was faced in a situation where he was dying. He still was that empathetic towards others. Just the generosity, right? Yes. And of course, you know, his ingenuity and being able to think outside the box and feign not being able to walk so that they could get a spot on the train instead Mm -hmm. of joining the death march to Bergen-Belsen. I mean, he figured out a way to make weapons out of just random objects. And then they came up with this escape plan. And I mean, to be able to thrive under that much pressure, his ability to take the risk to actually escape the moving train, I mean, that indicates his impulsivity and his ability to thrive under stress and his brain thrived under that pressure. Yeah. The other thing that stood out to me was when he's describing laying there under the train and becoming aware of his surroundings, he is hyper aware of everything that's going on around him. He's listening. He's looking. He's feeling the ground for blood. He's all of these thoughts are flooding his head. He has no idea if his friend was just shot in front of him. All of the people he was supposed to escape with, they're not there. He's by himself. And yet he's, he's still clear-minded that he just, he just walks. He sticks with the plan. Doesn't panic, just walks into the woods. And there was also a part where I don't think you read it, but he met up with another, you know, there were two other men that he met up with and they were going on together. And then at some point, I think it was your grandfather who decided, no, they're not going in the right way. I'm going to go off on my own. Yes. You know, I didn't even think of that one. But yeah, he who knows what happened to those other two. They were they were afraid they didn't want to go and expose themselves in the village. But he was, <laughs> at that point, I'm sure he was over it. And he's like, well, this is what I'm going to do. I mean, yeah. his ability to persevere and survive during all of that, I mean, and stay positive. He was still thinking about starting a family when all this was happening. I mean, it's just, how could he have not been ADHD? The hope, right? <laughs> right. So all the rest of the prisoners who did not escape, that were in that car, they went on to be killed. The, the Americans or the allies didn't get in there and rescue them. Richard, the man he mentioned, yeah, Richard actually did jump from the train. Hang on a second. I want to make sure I'm getting this right. Because Richard ended up surviving. And my grandfather, he met up with him years later. He found him. And they were able to compare their experiences. Richard, he was by himself and he um, was unable to find food. And he got so desperate that at one point he came upon an SS guard in the woods and just 
started walking towards him thinking, I don't even care anymore, just shoot me. But by that time, the SS guards had kind of gotten a little bit more lax about the situation. And so that SS guard let him go. Mm. Um, but yeah, he, I don't know what happened to his other friends. I mean, there's no telling. They went yeah. to Bergen Belson and Bergen Belson was liberated shortly thereafter. So there is a very strong chance that those people did survive, but who knows? Right. So I know in the journal, your grandfather talks about um, he went to Sweden. Yes. Did he ever get back to Poland? And what happened to his family? So we're not sure what happened to his parents. I believe that his parents were probably killed. He had two sisters and a brother. And I know of at least one sister that is still alive and she's in Warsaw mm-hmm. now. But yeah, it's for me, it would be speculation on what happened to the rest of his family. I don't know if he ever went back to Poland because I know that his next stop was the United States uh-huh. where he ended up meeting my grandmother who had just been through her own situation. I know that in the journal, he kept talking about wanting to go. I mean, that's kind of was the hope that just drove him right throughout was Mm -hmm. I need to get back to Poland. I need to see my family. And the whole time I'm reading this, I'm thinking how many of the people in similar situations during that time were thinking the same thing. And then they went back and their families were gone. Yeah. Yeah. A lot. What was your grandfather like? Did he talk about this experience at all? Or was it something that you knew about it? Everybody knew about it, but you didn't know the specifics until you actually found this journal. Is he still alive or no? He He's not alive. He lived to be 81 or 82. And which honestly, for all that he went through, he, yeah. he, lived, he lived a long life. <laughs> he did talk about it. It wasn't very often, but... <sighs> So my grandparents lived right next door to us as kids. How lovely. So I, I spent a lot of time over there. I, would, I saw them pretty much every day. He used to walk by me when I was at the bus stop every morning and greet me with Jindobre Renya, which mm-hmm. meant good morning, Renee. And mm-hmm. he, he always called me by the Polish version of my name, <laughs> which mm. I thought was cute. <laughs> but he would talk about it and he had... Nazi memorabilia and photographs, eight by 10 photographs, black and white, just of bodies that were stacked that he was probably, you know, they were probably given to him by allies that came upon them. He had a Nazi flag. I remember him showing me that. He would talk about it. His English was not great. So it was kind of hard but then the other thing is whenever he would start talking about it he would get emotional yeah and honestly i i asked my dad just the other day what were the circumstances of him of his capture like what really happened because i heard different things and my dad he didn't even know he said i don't i don't know (laughs) yeah and that was you know he grew up with them his whole life so he would talk about it, but it was definitely emotional. So growing up with him, 
were there traits or characteristics that he had that you now look back on them and say, ah, yeah, he, he, he was ADHD, you know, he had these traits. Absolutely. <laughs> he was very creative. He was into woodworking, painting, poetry. He gave me a dollar for every poem I would write when I was a kid. And like, I was <laughs> not a good poet. I mean, these were like three line poems and he didn't care. Just me taking the time to do it, he would happily pay me for it. And he would hang everything in his basement. He had paintings pretty much covering every inch of his basement walls that he had done. Wow. And some of them were visual memories that he had from the war that he put onto canvas. And so there was a lot of creativity and artistic ability and he would spend a lot of time outdoors in nature, always out in the woods, always taking walks. He had books everywhere. He had a library in their cellar that was just full of Polish and American books. And he would read the Polish books to me and sing Polish nursery rhymes to me and sometimes Polish drinking songs. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, and he was just, he loved being a grandfather. He, every time we went over there, the grandchildren, the very first thing that he would say when we crossed the threshold of their house was, what would you like to eat? What would you like to drink? And his thick <laughs> accent. And he would list off everything they had in the house. You want orange juice? Milk? <laughs> like, it's like food was the number one concern every yeah. minute of every day. And you can imagine <laughs> why, you know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Exactly. So how did he meet your grandmother? They met at a Polish-American club, and I believe it was in Buffalo, New York. She was 14 years younger than him when they met. So she was just a very young child during the Holocaust, and her story was completely different. Her family raised horses for the Polish army, and they had everything taken from them. So they're just, you know, I, I wear to this day, I have my great-grandmother's wedding ring on my right hand. And it was one of the only things that made it because she sewed it into her clothing so that the Nazis wouldn't find it. Mm -hmm. And so I proudly wear this ring. I love this ring. Oh. Um, but yeah, they met there and they were the most adorable couple. They still are. She She's still alive. She lives with my dad and my brother and my stepmom right now. And she still refers to my grandfather as her boyfriend. And she, he used to call her his girlfriend. Oh. And they had five children. Oh. So he got his family. <laughs> that is such a lovely story. Uh, I mean, it's not lovely, but... What comes of it is so lovely and the, you know, the human, the, the perseverance and the hope and how ultimately, yeah. even in the worst situations, yeah. how he was able to really build such a, such an incredible life, right? Yeah. And he was, uh, he was an engineer for 32 years with Niagara Mohawk. Mm. Um, my, my dad is an engineer. My mom was an engineer. <laughs> I mean, it's, yeah, lots of similarities, but he, he had a good life. He was very happy. And, you know, another funny story 
about the ADHD thing. <laughs> One day I came home from school and I looked outside and I see my grandpa frantically stomping on leaves that were on fire in our woods, <laughs> trying to put out like a forest fire that he accidentally started by himself. <laughs> And I see him with a garden hose. And so I'm like, I'm like, I don't know, like seventh or eighth grade. And I'm just casually calling the fire department. I'm like, I need you to come. Um, there's a forest fire and my grandpa is trying to put it out by himself. And just looking back on stuff like that, it's hilarious to me. And him letting that rabbit escape by accident. Is that yeah. not the most ADHD thing that you could <laughs> Yeah, but I was so I was so appalled that wait a minute they captured a rabbit and it's still alive. <laughs> I know. Well, yeah, wouldn't you? Uh, well, anyway. and then he stuck his feet in the in the bag, right, so that he could keep his legs warm, right, <laughs> with the live rabbit. I'm just like, oh my gosh! I had so many thoughts going through my head. Like, wasn't the rabbit? Biting you. Biting you. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Well, Renee, thank you so much for sharing the story, your family, your experiences, all of it. I loved this story because in all of the horror, there was something that was so hopeful and uplifting and just really just special about it. Yeah. It's it's definitely something that I'm proud of, our family history, and I'm so glad that you gave me the chance to share it, and I hope that it inspires, <laughs> especially the women that are listening that are newly diagnosed. I hope that they, they enjoy it and they see, you know, this is a good thing. This has allowed us to survive, and, you know, it's, I know that I've, I've probably, a lot of the things that I've been able to overcome is because of my ADHD and just the similarities of what he's gone through and some of the stuff that strong women with ADHD go through. I mean, we're given, <laughs> we're given a lot and we overcome a lot. So well, I really appreciate that. And your story too, about the learned helplessness and believing that you were a certain way and that you weren't smart and how all you needed was a little bit of a reframe because you mm -hmm. saw yourself in an environment that actually worked for you. And then all of a sudden, the sky's the limit. I think that is super inspiring, too. And it mirrors to a lesser extent, but it yes. mirrors, you know, your your grandfather's story as well. I mean, when we are really pushed to the test, it is amazing what we can accomplish, right? Definitely. And we, we, that's when we thrive. That's when our brain yeah. snaps into, hey. We're going to get this done. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. So I'm going to end with my last question. What do you think the key to living successfully with ADHD is? Oh, gosh. I think, um, well, for me, and I know it's not the same for you, and I'm sorry, um, <laughs> my medication. Yeah. No, I think, honestly, I think, I know, I, I, every time I hear you say that, I'm like, oh, poor Tracy, I hope she finds <laughs> something one day. No, I think it's it's recognizing the symptoms. I think it's going and getting the help that you and your doctor deem necessary and unique to you. And instead of trying to work against yourself, I think figure out what works for you and start helping yourself and give yourself some grace. Yeah, I think that's a huge one. Okay, well, Renee... 
where can people find you if <laughs> they want to connect? I'm on Instagram and Facebook. Um, I don't have a very exciting online presence. Um, I'm more of the, I, I like to look at what other people are doing <laughs> and, and do myself, but I'm on Instagram. Um, my handle is just at Renee Gruy. Okay, so that's R-E-N-E-E-G-R-E-W-E. Yes, and you okay. will see strange videos of my parrots and uh, the, the <laughs> exciting <laughs> ADHD activities that I've got going on. But if they want to send you a message, they can do it there? Absolutely. That sounds great. Renee, thank you. And we'll put that in the show notes as well as the journal. So we'll put that in the show notes. Renee, thank you so much for spending time with us here today. Thank you, Tracy. Absolutely. So that's what I have for you for this week. If you like this episode with Renee, please let us know by leaving a review. Our goal is to change the conversation around ADHD, helping as many women as we possibly can learn how their ADHD brains work so that they too may discover their amazing strengths. As always, you're listening to ADHD for Smartass Women. Come join me over at tracyadsuka.com and I will see you here next week. You've been listening to the ADHD for Smartass Women podcast. I'm your host, Tracy Atsuka, and we're available on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Not coincidentally, ADHD for Smartass Women, it's also the name of our free Facebook group. We're a totally smart-ass community of successful, ambitious women who share our ADHD wins, questions, and workarounds. Join us at tracyotsuka.com, where you can also find more information on our Your ADHD Brain is A-OK system. I spy a happier life for us, and I'll see you again next week.